As we pick up where we left off last week, we find that Elijah is still depressed. Remember that Elijah is fleeing from Jezebel in order to save his life. We emphasized last week that Elijah is not merely fleeing from Jezebel, but also that he's running to God. He is going to Mount Horeb in search for God, trying to find God and his help. If you will remember, Elijah had been so depressed that he had prayed to God and asked God to take his life. Rather than taking Elijah's life, God graciously sustained and preserved Elijah's life. And we looked at the very tender and compassionate way in which God addressed the needs of Elijah last week. But we find that Elijah does not come out of his depression overnight. Elijah is still on this desperate search for God. Forty days have transpired, and he finally arrives at Mount Horeb. And we want to consider this morning Elijah's encounter with God and what we're to learn from this encounter. We remind you, first of all, that Elijah seeks an encounter with God. The setting is, in verse 9, there, that is at Mount Horeb, he came to a cave and lodged in it. To uh, lodge literally means to spend the night. So Elijah is in a night in this cave. And many commentators suggest that it is the very cave where Moses had been when the Lord passed by. If we read in the book of uh, Exodus that Moses was in the cleft of a rock. That cleft is a cave. And uh, since in the Hebrew there's a definite article, many people think that it is the very, very same cave that Moses was in that Elijah now finds himself. What is without dispute is they're on the same mount. And there are a lot of similarities between what God does with Moses on that mount and what Elijah encounters on that mount. God speaks to Elijah in verse 9. And he came to a cave and lodged there, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. The Lord spoke to Elijah. And we might ask the question, should that surprise us? And I submit to you that it should not. We should not be surprised that God had spoken to Elijah, for God had repeatedly spoken to Elijah in the past. In fact, the scripture makes a point of that that uh, God speaks to Elijah. The first occasion that uh, the word of God mentions is that the word of the Lord came to Elijah telling him to go to the brook of Cherith where God would take care of Elijah in 1 Kings 17, 2 and 3. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith which is east of the Jordan. The word of the Lord came to Elijah in directing Elijah to Zarephath to the home of the widow, 1 Kings 17, 8 and 9. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah, directing Elijah to present himself to Ahab in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 1. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So God was accustomed to speaking to Elijah. That was not new. But what is surprising is what God has to say to Elijah. For God does not give him direction as he had in all these previous occasions, but rather he asks him a question. 
He asks him a question. Verse 9. And the word of the Lord, excuse me, yes, verse 9. And the word of the Lord came uh, to him, and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? That question is very significant, for God's going to ask it twice of Elijah. What are you doing here? And we could understand that question in two different ways. The first is, what are you doing here? Meaning, I have not told you to come here, so why are you here? Or, why are you here? That is, what is it that you are here for? What are you expecting? What do you want? And uh, I tend to think it's more of the second. Why are you here, Elijah? What do you want? And Elijah's response to the question is actually not a response to the question. If you look at verse 10, it says, he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, throw down your altars, killed your prophets with a sword, and I even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. What Elijah does not say, it's interesting that he does not say, I've come for you to take my life, for he, in verse 4 of chapter 19, it told us that he went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, it's enough now, O Lord, take away my life. So there's some progress here, at least on this occasion. He's not asking God to take away his life. But what does he say? Verse 10. I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with a sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek to take away my life. I'm not going to look at that response in detail at the moment. We'll address that in just a little later in the message. For now, I will just make the observation that Elijah does not really answer the question. And I submit to you because he doesn't really know what the answer to that question is. When God says, what are you doing here and what do you want? Elijah doesn't really know what he wants. He cannot put it into words. I wonder if you can relate to that aspect of Elijah. Have you ever been in a situation in which you're unhappy, but you don't even know why you're unhappy? Well, at least Elijah knows why he's unhappy, and he he recounts the situation that's making him unhappy, but he doesn't know what to ask God for. He doesn't know what to pray for. Originally, he was asking God to take away his life. He now comes to realize that's not the right answer. That's not what he should ask God for, but, but what should he ask? What should he ask? How should he pray? Can you relate to circumstances in which you're saying to yourself, how do I pray? What what do I need? What, What do I expect God to do? Elijah doesn't know. The Lord has a command for Elijah. He says, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord, verse 11. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. God is calling Elijah to give an account of himself. To stand before the Lord is to give account for one's actions before God. That is not a new phrase to us, or at least should not be, and it is not a new concept to Elijah. For Elijah 
had prided himself as one who stands before the Lord. That is, Elijah prided himself as one that was doing God's bidding and viewed himself as accountable to God. Elijah repeatedly uses this phrase to describe himself in his relationship to God. First, in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, when Elijah encounters Ahab, Elijah says to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, now these words, before whom I stand, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these three years except by my word. Elijah is saying, may God hold me accountable. Before God, I tell you, it will not rain. And if it rains, may God hold me accountable for what I have said. For what I have said is true. I am doing the bidding of God. So Elijah prided himself. I'm doing the bid of God and I'm accountable to him. In 1 Kings chapter 18, in the dialogue that takes place between Elijah and Obadiah, in 1 Kings chapter 8, 15, Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. May God hold me accountable if I don't do what I say that I'm going to do if I'm not acting at the will of God. So when God summons Elijah to come out and stand before him, he's summoning him to give the account of which he has acknowledged time and time before that he must give someday. And the Lord passed by Elijah, verse 11, and he said, go out and stand on the mount of the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by. Behold, the Lord passed by. And this is one of those instances in which our minds are directed back to the relationship that God had with Moses on this very same mount. For in Exodus chapter 33, verse 22, it says, While my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. So God had passed by Moses, and now God is passing by Elijah. And in the account in the book of Exodus, it tells us that when God passed by, he was not seeing his face, but he was seeing his back. The point of this incident of God passing by is that God does not meet Elijah through the displays of wonder. For as God passes by, there's a tremendous display of power, power. If you look at verse 11, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord and behold the Lord passed by and this is what happens. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks. Now think of that wind. Think of the ferocity of that wind. Uh, we have just seen 
pictures of a hurricane that came through uh, Florida and it uprooted trees. It blew over automobiles. It crumbled buildings. But it did not tear mountains apart or break in pieces rocks. What an incredible display of power. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. The Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. The Lord was not in the fire. Such displays are what Mount Horeb was known for. They occurred when Moses was on the mount. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there was thunders and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so all the people in the camp trembled. Exodus 19, 18, now Mount Sinai, which is the same as Mount Horeb, was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke went up into the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. So there's the earthquake again. More than likely, such displays of God's power was exactly what Elijah was looking for. That's why he went to Mount Horeb. He wanted to see this display of God's power. He wanted to see this great might and ferocity of God. After all, God had shown himself strong on the top of Mount Carmel when fire came down from heaven and consumed that sacrifice. God had proven himself to the nation of Israel in consuming that dripping wet sacrifice with fire from heaven. Elijah, in essence, has come for God to prove himself again. Show yourself that you are with me. Display your power. Let me see you at work. So God sends this incredible wind that comes. But God's not in the wind. God sends the earthquake. But God is not in the earthquake. God sends a fire. But God is not in the fire. That was not God's revelation of himself. That is not the encounter that Elijah stands in need of. They were not revelations of God. They did not communicate what God wanted to be known of himself. This was not the encounter that Elijah was expecting. God was not speaking through these phenomena. In every one of those instances that I read to you before concerning standing before God, Moses, uh, Elijah says, the, the living God before whom I stand, the living God before whom I stand, God is not a God simply of nature. God is not merely a force. God is more than just a power. God is not revealed in the universe in that way. God is distinct from, God is separate from the wind, the fire. God is in control of those things. But they are not God. That is false worship. That's what 
the worshipers, that's what the pagans believed, that God was these elements, that God was these forces. That's not our God. Our God is a living God. Our God is a personal God. And that's how God reveals himself to Elijah. But Elijah, again, is no different than we are. Have you ever craved signs, wonders, wanting God to display himself, to demonstrate his truthfulness, demonstrate his faithfulness, demonstrate his power to you? Have you ever looked for and wanted God just to somehow give you a sign that he is with you and he is that one that he declares himself to be? We find in this passage that what we really stand in need of is a, a fresh word from God. For God speaks to Elijah. And what we really need is for God to speak to us. For then comes a still small voice in verse 12. And after the earthquake of fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. The sound of a low whisper. King James, a still small voice. The small voice stands in contrast to the bombastic displays of power. God thundered. God roared. But when he meets with Elijah, it's in a still, quiet, low whisper. God doesn't say, what are you doing here, Elijah? God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Again, it's his tenderness. It's, it's his compassion. It's his mercy and it's grace. He comes quietly. Now Elijah obeys the summons to go out and stand before God and give an account of himself, verse 13. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. So all this time he's still been in the cave. And as he comes out, he comes out humbly, knowing that he's entering into the presence of God, for he has heard the voice. For it tells us in verse 13, when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in the cloak and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. He knows that he is in no place to face God. He remembers what God had said to Moses, you cannot see my face, for men shall not see me and live. And God had said, I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Elijah wraps his face in his cloak in preparation for meeting with God. And once again, God graciously asks Elijah the question, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? What do you want? Elijah gives the exact same response that he had given earlier, verse 14. He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, throw down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So far, this experience has brought no change to Elijah, no relief, no satisfaction. It's the exact same words that he uttered before the experience as after the experience. 
We can see by these repeated words that they were constantly on the mind of Elijah. He had rehearsed them over and over again. I believe that in those 40 days that he was traveling to Horeb, that he was contemplating exactly what he was going to say to God when he got there. And what he wanted God to know is that he'd been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel had forsaken his covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with a sword, and even I, even I only am left. He had it down verbatim. He had it down word for word. They were the thoughts that tremendously haunted him and went through his mind. And again, we can relate. Aren't there times in which we have just rehearsed over and over again the injustices that we've experienced, the way in which we've been treated in a fashion that we don't think is right or just or good? And we go over our, and over again in our minds things that people have done to us, people that have said nasty things to us, the way life hasn't turned out the way we wanted it to, and we rehearse these things. We go over them and over them and over again in our mind. That's where Elijah is. What is striking in Elijah's thoughts is the contrast that he draws between himself and the people of Israel. He was zealous for God, but the people had thrown down their altars and killed the prophets. And he says, I'm the only one left, and they want to take my life. In this short, brief presentation of Elijah, we find that Elijah's perspective is all wrong. Elijah's perspective is messed up. Elijah sees things far worse than they really are. While there's a measure of truth in what Elijah says, again, there's a real failure to maintain perspective. One of those failures to maintain perspective is he fails to see God at work. He, he fails to see what God has done. He sees what the people have done in the past, but he overlooks what had taken place on Mount Carmel. He says of the people in verse 14, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars. That's true, they had. In 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 32 on Mount Carmel, Elijah rebuilds that altar in the name of the Lord, made a trench about the altar as great would uh, contain two sarahs of seed. The altars had been thrown down, but the altars also had been rebuilt or were beginning to be rebuilt. God's prophets have been killed in the past. We know that in 1 Kings chapter 18. And he alludes to it. And killed your prophets with a sword. But he forgets what happened on Mount Carmel. And on Mount Carmel, it was not God's prophets who were killed. It was the prophets of Baal. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 16. And Jehu, the son of... Oh, excuse me. Uh, Uh, okay, I've got the wrong verse there. But in 1 Kings chapter 18, the uh, prophets of Baal were slain on Mount Carmel. And it was not true that the people of Israel were seeking Elijah's life. If you look at verse 
14 of chapter 19. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life. It wasn't the people of Israel who were seeking Elijah's life. It was Jezebel that was seeking Elijah's life. He blew it all out of proportion. He saw things that were terribly wrong in the past, failed to see what God was doing in the present, and also was misguided in his analysis of all that was taking place. Application, it's common trait when a person is depressed is that we see things in a far worse light than they really are. When we're depressed, we blow life's problems out of proportion. And particularly, Elijah failed to see God at work. He failed to see what God was doing. And that's what happens when we get depressed and when we start feeling sorry for ourselves, we lose sight of what God is doing. How often we are guilty of seeing only the bad and failing to see the good. Again, failing to see God at work. But there's much more going on here than simply that. Elijah sees himself as deserving much better than what is taking place. He sees the nation of Israel as guilty. He sees himself as zealous. And it's unfair as to what is taking place and why isn't God handling these incongruities and these inconsistencies. And even more than that, Elijah is seeing himself as Israel's last hope. For it says in verse 14, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. What he is saying in essence is, when Elijah dies, the hope of Israel dies with him. When he's gone, there's no other prophet. When he's gone, God's witness is lost. When he's gone, what then? What then? Then they'll understand. Then they'll realize how awful it was. When I'm gone, it's going to be horrendous. This is a very strange perspective in light of Elijah's request earlier that he would die. How do you reconcile those two thoughts? When I'm gone, then there's no hope. Well, Elijah has gotten to the place where Elijah believes that the people deserve God's judgment. The people deserve all that's coming to them. He believes that it will be God's justice, that when he's out of sight, that everything is going to crumble. They deserve what they're going to get. And lest you think that I am trying to be a mind reader, and lest you think that I am overstating what the Word of God says, listen to Romans chapter 11. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. 
God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? That's what the word God says. This is Elijah appealing to God against the nation. He's not interceding for them. He's not saying forgive them. He's saying, call down this fire upon them. Judge them for what they have done to you and what they have done to me. Again, Romans chapter 11, verse 2. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left. They seek my life. The scripture quotes this particular portion as Elijah appealing against Israel. Elijah believes that when he dies, it's, it's all over. All hope is lost. Which brings us to God's response. The Lord speaks to Elijah in verse 15. And the Lord said to him, note what he says. Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha, shall put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel on the knees that have not bowed to Baal, every mouth that has not kissed him. You know, as you read this response, I would submit to you that it's rather surprising to us. At a cursory level, it seems as though God almost ignored everything that Elijah had just said. <laughs> uh, he, he just pours out his heart, and now God gives this list of things for Elijah to do. I would point out to you that Elijah's not rebuked. And just as importantly, God does not express agreement with what Elijah has said either. He doesn't rebuke him, nor does he say, you know, you're right, Elijah. Uh, thanks for pointing that out to me. I missed that. Uh, that was very helpful. That was very instructive. There's also no mention of the inner musings of Elijah, of what he thought about what God said, or how this helped him psychologically, how this helped him emotionally, how this dealt with his feelings at the present time. If one thinks of this as a counseling session between Elijah and God, it's kind of a strange session. God responding to him in the way that he does. I submit to you that what God does is provide a new perspective on life for Elijah which is exactly what Elijah needs. God provides a new perspective, and I want us to look at this perspective. I sum it up by saying this. God, in essence, is saying, I've got this, Elijah. I've got this. If you can remember anything from this message, 
I'd just like you to remember that phrase, I've got this. It would be helpful in life in every situation if we can simply say, God's got this. God's got this. That's the constant refrain that we have to have in life. God's got this. God's got this. Elijah needed a new perspective of his own purpose in life. God was not done with Elijah, though this will actually be accomplished, much of this, through Elisha. In verse 15, it says, Lord said to him, Go, return your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall know Haziel to be king over Syria. Once again, God speaks. And once again, when God speaks, he gives Elijah something to do. Now it's back to being consistent. Every time that God had spoken to Elijah, he'd given him something to do. And now he gives him something to do again. God in his grace continues to use Elijah. God hasn't placed him on a dung heap. God doesn't say, how dare you speak to me this way, Elijah. God doesn't say, you've got too big a britches. He doesn't say you have elevated yourself to too much importance. And all those things were true. Instead, he just continues to use Elijah. This is God's grace, people. How God continues to use his people. How God continues to accept us and work through us and accomplish his purpose and his will. God, Elijah needed a new perspective of God's governance over the nations. God is at work. God has got this. He says in verse 15, And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. This is Israel's fiercest enemy at the time. And God is saying to Elijah, I've got this. I know all about Syria. I want you, and then I'll talk more about this in weeks to come. Actually, Elisha's going to do this. But he says to Elijah, I want you, and Elisha's going to be an extension of Elijah's ministry. But the key here is to anoint Haziel, king over Syria. Elijah, I want you to understand. I place Haziel as king over Syria. This is future. But no, I'm doing this. I'm doing this. Next, Elijah needed a renewed sense of God's governance over the nation of Israel, over Ahab and Jezebel. God was at work. God has this. Verse 16, And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. At this point, it's Ahab and his wife Jezebel. And she's the one who's wanting to kill Elijah. She is the force. She is the one that he is fleeing from. And he doesn't go into great detail. He just simply says, Elijah, go anoint Nimshi, king over Israel. I've got this. Okay? I understand what's going on. I know about Ahab. I, I know about Jezebel. Don't worry about it. Just 
Continue on, I've got this. I have anointed, I've established who's going to be king next. I'm taking care of it. And Elijah needed a new perspective on his own role as God's prophet. All did not depend on Elijah. When Elijah was off the scene, things weren't going to fall apart. Verse 16. And Jehu the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meshulah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. Elijah, when you die, it's not going to be over. But God doesn't say when you die. He says in your place. In your place. And we should not lose sight of when we get to chapters 20 and 22, that there are other prophets who are ministering in Elijah's lifetime. There are other prophets who are addressing Ahab and other things. He's saying, I'm alone. He wasn't. He wasn't. He wasn't even the only one serving God. We're going to be introduced to other prophets in chapter 20 and chapter 22. He needed a new perspective. He also needed a new perspective on God's people. God will always have a faithful remnant, verse 18. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, every mouth that has not kissed him. What an awful perspective. Elijah thought that there were no such people as a faithful people. There were no people who hadn't thrown down the altars, who hadn't kissed Baal. He was the only one. God says, I've got 7,000. I've got 7,000. The Lord, in his word, tells us how to apply that truth. For again, reading from Romans 11, it says this. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I'm a, myself an, an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against the Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself, 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I'm still reading from a Romans 11. So too, at this present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, your grace would no longer be grace. The application that God's word makes of this passage is, Elijah... I have a chosen people. And Elijah, these people are chosen by grace. Undeserved. Undeserved. That are kept and preserved by me. Elijah, 
was a prophet that was chosen by grace, not because of his zeal, not because of what he had done, not because he was so different from the nation of Israel, but because he was like them. And God in his grace preserved him, kept him alive, used him, honored and even glorified him. Conclusion is how often it is that we need a new perspective on life. To realize not all depends upon us, that this world is not out of control, that things are not as bad as everyone is making them out to be. That God has his people. That God is at work. That God has got this. Every time you watch the news, God has got this. Every time you've got that annoying conversation at work and everybody's telling you this world is falling apart, God has got this. Every time you hear about the political scene, God has got this. Every time you think about your health, God has got this. God has got this. God has got this. We need to keep in mind God's sovereignty. We speak so often of God's sovereignty, and the reason is because we work through the Bible, and the Bible repeatedly draws out God's sovereignty. Why does it say it so often? Because we're so prone to forget it. We need to be reminded constantly that God has got this. For just as Elijah can lose perspective of God, so can we. It's not just about Elijah, it's about all of us. The work and purposes of God are larger than ourselves. We do not want to fail to see God's continued goodness and grace to Elijah. God continues to use Elijah, as I have said. God provides Elijah with a faithful companion to help him in the service of the ministry. And then, God wonderfully takes Elijah alive into heaven. This Elijah who wanted to die, God does exceedingly abundantly more than he could ever ask and think. For ultimately in wanting to die, he wants to be with God. But God allows Elijah to be in his presence without even dying. It's incredible. And don't forget that when we get to the New Testament, when Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, it's Moses and it's Elijah who are there talking with Jesus. A God who does not rebuke him, but a God who corrects him, a God who helps him, and God who enables him to continue to minister, to serve, to be used, and to be welcomed into God's presence. 
in all the time in which we are searching and looking for God, all the times that we feel alone, all the times we lose perspective, we must ask ourselves what God asked of Elijah. What are you doing here? What do we want God to do? What do we want God to do for us? Don't expect the signs and the wonders. That's not how God ministers his grace and his goodness. Expect a still, small voice. Learn that the greatest encounter you can have with God is through his word. As you pour over the scriptures, as you lay open your heart, as you ask God to show you great and mighty things from his word, that God would teach us, that God would provide us a new perspective, that God would give us the, the strength, the comfort, the encouragement, the faith to go on. God uses his word. God will teach us. He's got this. We can trust him with our individual lives. We can trust him with our nation. We can trust him with the world. That's all in the people that Elijah anoints. God has got this. God has got this. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful that you've got the whole world in your hands. The bitty baby and the nations of this world Lord, help us as we lose perspective to gain the perspective that you have got all of this under control, that you know the beginning from the end and you have a plan. You have people anointed. You, you have people chosen. You have people ready. You have a remnant. We are thankful that your word promises that in every generation there will be a remnant. There will always be a people of God. There will never be a time in which your name is not mentioned on this earth. There will never be a time, no matter what persecution, no matter what adversary, no matter what is before us, there will never ever be a time on the face of this earth where there aren't believers worshiping, serving, honoring, and glorifying you. May we never, ever lose perspective. You've got this. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.